We are using for our liturgy this morning John 20, the story of the resurrection from John's gospel. It gives us the shape of all that we're doing in worship this morning, and we want to talk about the disciples as they were hiding away from the passage that we just read together. But young Christians and young theologians, our worship order is not the way it usually appears. Most Sundays we're together, we do a confession of sin and then our sermon, but this morning everything's turned around. We're doing our sermon first and then a confession of sin, which really seems backward if you think about it. But I want you to see if you can find the reason we've turned everything around. Why does the sermon come first and then a confession of sin and assurance? The answer is in the passages that we'll read together. So see if you can find the answer for yourselves. Pray with me as we begin. Now, Lord Jesus, we want you to stand in our midst, in all of our trouble, all of our turmoil, and all we want to hear from you are these same words. Peace be with you. We say them to one another from time to time, but when they come from our lips, they seem and feel empty often. But when you say them, darkness lifts. Confusion is chased away. Despair is undone. When you say these words, troubled hearts come alive. And those who don't believe are filled with faith. So say these things to us this morning. And for them, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? Easter only makes sense if you've been dead, dead in ability, dead in trust, dead in hope, dead in love, dead in faith, dead in joy. Or in the case of the disciples, they were dead in what they expected Jesus to be for them, and they had also died in what they, would, they thought they would be themselves. Easter is only for those who have seen death up close and been kissed by it and tasted its rancid breath or felt death reach out and touch them with its cold fingers sending chills through body and soul. But for those who are strong and for those who can keep themselves away from death's traps and its ambushes, its lures and enticements even, the resurrection is meaningless. It's just a fairy tale. But if you somehow keep running into death or flirting with it, tripping over it, falling into it, then the resurrection is necessary. It's as necessary as the next breath. You realize how many stories beg for the resurrection. Jesus and Lazarus had their tombs, Peter had the rooster-echoing courtyard of the high priest. John Mark had the Garden of Gethsemane that snagged his clothing during Thursday's betrayal and left him running naked from the olive groves. Judas had his noose and his field of blood, and now the disciples have their locked room over the streets of Jerusalem. It was a place to hide. 
with extra deadbolts installed over the weekend, a chain on the door for extra security, windows blacked out, and a lookout, a friend of theirs posted on a corner below, watching to make sure that some neighbors aren't hunting them down, turning against them. The lookout watching to make sure that the temple police won't turn Friday's crucifixion into a fever to stir out Christians. Mary and some of the others had been to the tomb earlier that morning and they had seen Jesus. And Peter and John had raced to the tomb and they'd seen for themselves that he was raised, although they didn't see him. And the disciples, as they gathered together in the room, probably spent the better part of the day trying to make sense of it all, remembering everything that Jesus had said to them about his resurrection. And they can quote his cryptic lessons, but they can't pull down his meaning. And nothing shows how they don't understand the resurrection like the locked door. It's a picture, a heartbreaking picture, but it's a picture of the church. Nothing shows how we don't understand the resurrection all these years and many books and countless sermons later like the locks and the doors we hide behind. I I see it in mothers who won't stop managing everything around them. I see it in fathers who are overwhelmed and so they detach. I see it in children who fight against the people who are trying to love them. They don't trust anyone's love, it seems. I see it in the way we're addicted to busyness to drive out our feelings of insignificance and loneliness. I see it in the games and the gimmicks we use and play with one another. I see it in the dodges and the excuses we try to make sound spiritual, in the ways that we clamor for community and push each other away. And with everyone, you can almost hear the locks click. And then suddenly, without warning, Jesus is standing among us. He's not chased off by our locks. He just comes in. And in the passage, there's no explanation of how Jesus was able to just enter the room. The story is obvious, or so the author assumed. If death can't keep Jesus in, then none of our locks can keep him out. And he finds us in the rooms that we run off to hide in, just as he did the disciples on the first day of the week, somewhere late in the afternoon, early in the evening. And he doesn't scold them. He preaches to them his usual sermon, peace be with you. Those are the words that God speaks to people when He appears to them and He knows they're going to have trouble believing His grace and His goodness. He comes to them and speaks these words. Peace be with you. The words of good news. Not a general wish that peace would be our experience, but a much stronger assertion that peace has come looking for you. Peace has come knocking on your door, and when you didn't open, peace invited itself in. Peace has come to pull you into itself. You don't have to push your way into it. It has come to take you. 
And Jesus came to make peace in your flesh. The fact that he's standing there personally in the body that was crucified, the body that is now resurrected, standing bodily in the room, speaking these words, peace be with you, means you're supposed to have peace in your flesh. And when was the last time you felt anything like that? When was the last time you felt peace washed through your spine and your nervous system? When was the last time you felt peace soak all the way down to your guts? That's where the ancients believed that emotions resided, in your internal organs. And if you've ever been upset and had a a churning stomach, you know that they were exactly right. When was the last time peace settled in down low for you? When was the last time peace flushed out in your facial expression? Jesus came to make peace with his cross and his resurrection. And now he stands in the middle of this locked room as the perfect embodiment that all of our guilt and shame and regret and embarrassment has been bled out and it's limp and lifeless. It doesn't even have the strength to lift its head and sneer at us anymore because Jesus left it hanging on the cross behind him, left it buried in his tomb when he walked out. And when the women found him that morning sitting outside of his tomb, and when Peter and John, breathless and heaving, didn't find him at all at the tomb, but found his burial linens left there because they weren't needed any longer, it could mean only one thing. Jesus has come to make peace In all the places we slink off to die faithless and hopeless. Our guarded, locked rooms. I used to find skeleton keys hidden throughout my grandparents' house when I was a child. In the back of some drawer or hanging on a nail just inside a closet or forgotten and left on top of a windowsill in the cellar. There's nothing so mysterious, nothing so hopeful as finding a skeleton key. What does this go to? What does this unlock? What will this open? What will it uncover? And in all the keys I found in my grandparents' house as a child, not one of them ever unlocked a thing. But Jesus comes in with the key that opens all of our locks of fear and unbelief, and lack of faith. Four fleshy words, peace be with you. And I know the reflex. I I know what we do with those words. I do the same thing myself. Still not believing, we turn the locks on him again. And undeterred, Jesus walks through our locks again. And he repeats these words And he never tires of saying them because they never wear out. They never lose strength. They never lose their meaning. They never lose his will and intent in them. Peace be with you. And then Jesus does three very strange things in rapid succession. He shows his hands and his feet, his side. He shows the disciples his wounds. And then he breathes on them. And then he does the most dangerous thing of all. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. 
First, he shows his hands and his feet. He shows his friends the scars of his sacrifice. He's showing them that he's not a ghost and this isn't a trick. This passage means that anyone who would ever claim to be the Messiah has to have holes where the nails and the spear went. It's authentication. Anyone who claims to be Messiah has to bear the marks of the sacrifice. And Jesus showing his hands and his feet and his side, he's showing his friends that he's the Jesus of the cross. He's the one who bears the marks of the sacrifice. And anyone who ever wore the marks of a crucifixion wouldn't walk away from it. Anyone who had marks like this wouldn't live to tell about it, wouldn't live to show them off. But Jesus is showing that he had died under all of this. And the pink ridged openings in his hands, in his feet, told the whole grisly truth of it. But because he was not still dead, even though it made no sense at all to the disciples in the room, These weren't just the scars of pain and brutality. These were scars of sacrifice and grace. Look, all disciples, the disciples back then, disciples following Jesus now, all disciples always have marks of His grace to wear in their bodies. Maybe not sealed up wounds, still visible. Not stigmata. But the cross always leaves its mark on us. Somewhere as people look at us, somewhere as people look into us, they should see a dying, a purging, a washing, an overthrow of powers, a change that can't quite be explained. So Jesus enters the room and he says to the disciples, peace be with you, and they don't say it, But they're certainly thinking, how can you say that? We're scared beyond our wits, and you're not in the grave where you're supposed to be, and we don't understand how it can be so. And Thomas, one of your own disciples, says, we're making all of this up, and who knows what people are saying in the streets. And now here you are, standing in the middle of a locked room, and the funny thing is, we never open the door. Where's the peace in any of that? And he holds his hands out to them, hands that any of us would have put gloves on or thrust to the bottoms of pockets. And he says, here, look, these are the marks, the promissory signs that the sins that have ruled your hearts and surged through your body, they don't rule you anymore. The love and the grace of God the Father has laid its stronger claim on you in the Son. And because of the grace of my scars, the scars you wear because of your own sins, you don't have to cover up for embarrassment anymore. You can show them off. You can boast in them now. Ugly disfigurements have turned to pink patches of healing and restoration and reconciliation. And then Jesus leans in and He breathes onto them. He breathes into them. 
Now look, this doesn't mean that we should start a breathing ministry in our church. I don't want to see you walking around the hall saying vaguely spiritual things and then exhaling on each other. Something will be lost in the translation. Jesus is giving to them his spirit. There's one other place where this happened in scripture. It was in the Garden of Eden. God breathed into a lump of clay and made it into a man. And so when Jesus breathes his Holy Spirit into his friends, he's turning them from lifeless, dead lumps into living images of his grace. And of course he can do this as one who's just walked away from death's detainment. The one who took his breath back from unbreathing death can give it to whomever he pleases. But what does the Spirit do in them? It's in verse 23. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it's withheld. Did you catch it? The Spirit makes forgiveness the air we breathe. We can say the Spirit does a lot of things, but this passage says the Spirit makes forgiveness our breath Can't live without it. The Spirit gives us a taste for it. And we want to draw it in and hold it deep. And then there's this relief of letting it out, extending it to others. And when we go dark and when we doubt, the Spirit is the one who circulates in us an assurance of forgiveness, whispering all the time, stop believing that Jesus is still hanging cursed from the cross ineffectual to breathe life into you because he has no breath at all. Stop believing that Jesus is still shut up in the tomb, unable to forgive anyone. Jesus stands in your airless midst, giving you forgiveness to breathe in and breathe out again. And when we try to live without forgiveness, it's like, Diving underwater and diving too deep and too far. And the pressure strangles our lungs. And the edge wears off on the oxygen that we've pulled into ourselves before diving in. And we have to scramble to break the surface to get a new lungful. That's what it feels like to live without forgiveness. His spirit of forgiveness lets us catch our wind after we've suffocated under our wretchedness and our guilt, it's like the deep breath that settles everything in us. So he stands in the middle of the room and says to the disciples, peace be with you. He shows them the wounds of his grace. And then he gives them the spirit, the breath of forgiveness. And then he does the most frightening thing the disciples could imagine. He unlocks the door and he swings it wide and leaves it hanging open in the hall. And he says to them in verse 21, as the Father sends me, I'm sending you. Where? Out there? You want us to go out there? One of them probably jumped for the door and tried to pull it back shut again, but Jesus steps in the way. What good is a resurrection that stays buried? 
What good is a resurrection that plays dead? A resurrection that's shy? What good is a resurrection that won't come out of the tomb? That won't leave a barricaded apartment? There is no peace be with you in that. I love you, but you're evicted. You're not staying here in this rented room. And you're not sent out into the world with nothing. You have my scars of grace, my spirit, my breath of forgiveness. Take that with you. In fact, because you have my forgiveness, that should make you want to go out into the world. This summer, Jennifer and I got in a kayak one afternoon and we paddled out, I don't know, 400, 800 meters offshore of the beach where we were staying and we tied our kayak off on the barrier reef just at the place where the waves spilled over the coral wall. And we put masks over our eyes and we pressed snorkels between our lips and our teeth and we slipped over the side into an aquarium without walls. We'd been out doing this throughout the week, but we'd never done it alone. We'd always been with friends. A group of us went out one day and we tied our kayaks off at the same buoy and we dived the coral cliffs. And we'd been out to a marine reserve, a place where there was a cut in the reef, but we'd been with an entire group and we had guides and dive captains on the boat. This was different. It was just the two of us. And we'd been out swimming snorkeling for maybe an hour, I was chasing a a shoal of these blue-green fish, and they would glide through the current, and then, without any warning, without any provocation, they would all dart to one side, and then dart back. And then I became frightened. I couldn't see what was making them dart. And then I thought, what if something comes over the reef Something I don't want to meet. What if something comes from the open water into the shallows? Something hungry, something all instinct, something unfeeling, unforgiving. And here I am splashing around in its hunting ground. We drifted a long way from our kayak. There was no way to get back to it fast. And I realized if anything happens, I don't think I can get us out of it. And I'm sure the disciples felt that same jolt of terror. If we step out of that door, who knows what we'll meet? If we step out of this door, who knows what's waiting for us? I do, Jesus says. You'll meet more people in hiding. You'll meet people behind elaborate locks of their own. And they'll fight you tooth and nail to hold on to their locks. When you walk out this door, you'll meet with hatred and misunderstanding and mistreatment and ridicule because people don't believe grace. When you walk through this door, you'll meet people who measure themselves and everyone else by law-keeping, not by the loving heart of God reaching for them with a Savior. You'll meet people who have excuses for unbelief and complex arguments for their immaturities. People who think God loves them for their zeal and their fervor in all of its twisted, mutated forms. But it's all the same thing. It's people cowering in locked rooms. You can tell in our house when somebody's mad or hurt or unbelieving. We end up in separate rooms, separate sides of the house. 
and depending on who has been hurt and who is unbelieving at the moment, sometimes there is a hand-scribbled sign on a piece of torn notebook paper, and it's got huge, colorful, emotional letters that say things like, stay out, keep away. Sometimes it tells the truth. I hate everyone. Isn't it funny that the scars of grace and the breath of forgiveness would be all that's needed to open the slam door and take the sign down. But our hearts love locks. It's amazing the way the gospel writers describe the shockwaves of the resurrection. In their words, the rising of Jesus and the rising He calls us to doesn't stop at the door of the tomb. And the resurrection doesn't get shoveled down to the end of our lives, deferred like something we can't quite understand. So we'll just have to trust it's of great importance and it will come into play much later. But that's not what the gospel writers do. They show the resurrection of Jesus reaching into the lives of ordinary people. Like walking into a locked room where disciples don't want to be found. But it all comes down to this. The reason we lock ourselves away in fear and anxiety. The reason we lock ourselves away in addictions and obsessions. The reason we cultivate fantasies and live in them. And we create these carefully crafted personal mythologies until they become our perception of reality. Though it's a reality that will never be realized. The reason we wear ourselves out seeking perfection and control and success. The reason we hate and judge and accuse and refuse to forgive. The reason we torture ourselves with the opinions of others. The reason we distrust each other and can't give ourselves away. The reason we idolize each other. We idealize each other. We demand too much of each other and live perpetually disappointed. The reason we live locked behind our embarrassment for things we wish we could take back but can't, things we've done and can't undo, the reason we lock ourselves in our guilt and regret, the reason we put ourselves in all of these many tombs, waiting rooms, antechambers for death, the reason is we can't believe we're loved. We can't believe we're loved by the one who knows love most closely and most perfectly, who knows how to make it painfully pure, and he won't applaud our counterfeits, our distortions, our fakes. We can't believe we could ever be loved as far as love is able to go. We can't believe that we could be loved past the rejection that we throw at it, and the shame, and the failure, and the abandonment, and the betrayal that we bring to it. We can't believe that love can't be turned away from us with suffering. Suffering that comes in the form of iron spikes, and trembling limbs, and humiliation, and nakedness, and dreadful judgment. Somehow, we can't believe that 
pain and suffering makes love sweeter, not bitter, not spoiled. We can't believe that love would love us all the way to its last faint heartbeat, its dying gasp, and even then it won't stop. That somehow love would kick its way through the grave to have us. No way could love do the unthinkable. No way could love do the unspeakable. There's no possible way love could ever do the laughable, the most extravagant thing for us. We're scars in loving us. Barge into our turmoil and breathe into us peace. No way could love die under the awful weight of loving us and then live again to keep on loving us which is just an elaborate, drawn-out way to describe forgiveness. And that's it. We can't believe we could ever be forgiven. That's as far as love has to go. And that's exactly the way Jesus has loved us. He's standing in the middle of our locked rooms, our safe houses. And He Himself is the good news that forgiveness is ours. We've rejected divine love, but we are not rejected. And we're forgiven to love again. That's what the resurrection is. Resurrection is forgiveness worn in flesh. You can go back to the first page of your bulletin at some point this week and read it in the Apostles' Creed. It's not a mistake that the creed ends by saying... And I believe in the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body. It's not coincidental that those two things are put together. Forgiveness in our bodies is the resurrection reaching for us from eternity. And Jesus, standing where we hide away in fear and unbelief, says to us, if you have the fullness of saving love, you don't need a locked room anymore. On the whole, I think we do our holidays backward. I think we do our holy days backward. We put all our emphasis into December 25th. And Easter gets the emotional leftovers. Christmas is like a birthday party for someone you dearly love. And Easter is a party, but we're not quite sure who it's for or what it's for. And all the guests kind of mill around waiting for someone to take, make a toast. And there's a lot of clinking of glasses and clearing of throats. But in the end, nobody's quite sure what to say. So we all say nothing. Christmas has lights and carols. All the songs of Christmas. Have you ever noticed how many more songs there are for the nativity than there are for the resurrection? And feasts, a whole month of feasting. And Easter gets a brunch, a ham. And there are gifts in December, elaborate, expensive, emotionally laden gifts, these surprises wrapped up in colored papers and ribbons. And Easter has chocolates and bunnies and baskets and dyed eggs. The pastor, writer, Frederick Buechner says, the things that we give away on Easter, they add nothing to the day, and they're so meaningless, they can't subtract anything from it either. And even in Scripture, Christmas gets a star in the sky. 
A supernova hangs in the heavens that wasn't there before. And astronomers from the east see it, and they cross deserts to find the one under that star, and they bring treasures with them. And shepherds are called away from their liquor bottles out in the fields at midnight by an army of singing angels who break out in this melodic, ear-splitting prophecy. And you can get the idea that even the animals in the stable are willing to kneel and worship on this occasion. Easter, Easter gets ghost stories and rumors and disciples cowering in a rented room with heavy furniture piled in front of the door so no one can get through. But if there was ever a day to bring Ebenezer Scrooge out of himself, out of his selfish hermitage, and change his heart, and send him running through the streets, shouting his joy at being forgiven and made new. It's not the birth of the baby. It's the rising of the lover who has gone all the way past the ends of love, and nothing could stop him. Not the shutting down of all of his bodily systems with the force of judgment, not a heavy stone door, not a Roman detachment of armed guards given the graveyard shift, not even your locked rooms of fear and despair and unbelief and pain. If Jesus is risen, you have to rise with him. You have to live like you're forgiven. You have to live like you're loved. I know you don't believe it. I know you'll forget it. And so will I. And I'm going to say it anyway. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Christ is risen. Happy Easter. Lord Jesus, give us the gifts that you gave to your disciples. Give to us the scars that mark your grace deep in our bodies. Give to us the scars that show we've not been abandoned, we've not been left alone. Give to us the breath and wind of forgiveness through the Spirit breathing in us. And oh Lord Jesus... Give to us such faith in the resurrection that we'd come out of our hiding and out of our locked rooms and we'd be willing to proclaim the fullness of the Savior's love. And if you'll do all of these things for us, then truly we'll be able to say death has not won and death is not winning. Truly, we'll be able to say, the Savior has overcome all enemies, and I have no use for my locks anymore. Grant us these gifts, and we will give you thanks. We ask in the name of the risen one.